Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. All right, welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. We are on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Who am I? Well, I'm Cindy House, and I host this podcast, the very one you're listening to. Today, we have Talia Schlanger on the pod today. Before we get into Talia, I want to encourage you to sign up for Basic Folk's monthly newsletter. You can do so at the link in the show notes. Or you can go to basicfolk.com and sign up there. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It's all happening. And Basic Folk is a listener-supported podcast. You can make a contribution at basicfolk.com. There's also a link in the show notes to do that. It really helps us out. Everything that we're able to do is made possible by listener support. We are a teeny tiny operation, so it's really a situation where every dollar really does make a difference. Okay, thanks. Canada's Talia Schlanger is best known for her work in broadcasting, as in guest hosting Q with Tom Power on Canada's CBC Radio, Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing podcast, as well as taking over for David Dye on NPR Music's World Cafe in Philadelphia. Before all of that, Talia was an actor and singer in many theater productions, including Mamma Mia!, Queen's We Will Rock You, and Green Day's American Idiot. While she has found much success in her two previous careers, something has been pulling on Talia for years. She wanted to write, record, and perform her own music. She had something to say and made the brave leap into the unknown and left her coveted role at WXPN's World Cafe in order to say it. The culmination of events has led Talia to her debut album, out now, Grace for Going. In our conversation, Talia shares insights into her upbringing in Thornhill, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto, within a Jewish family deeply rooted in faith and family heritage. She reflects on the impact of her grandparents, Holocaust survivors, and how their stories shaped her childhood. Talia talks about her unique journey from performing eight shows a week in theater productions to becoming a distinguished radio host. Her evolution as a singer, her bravery, and some important boundaries have allowed her to find her authentic voice while maintaining a crucial work-life balance. Throughout the interview, she touches on themes of personal growth, acts of kindness, and her commitment to learning and curiosity, offering a fascinating glimpse into the life and career of this remarkable person. Talia Schlanger, the debut album Grace for Going, Let's take a listen to a song from this record, Attention, and then we'll get to our conversation with Talia Schlanger on Basic Folk. Pause 
me close Whisper how you love the shape your name takes in my mouth Soft and low Breathe me in my tension Attention is oxygen You say oh Hi, Talia. Hi, Cindy. Thanks for being on Basic Folk. I'm so I'm so pumped about this, actually. <laughs> Good. I'm really pumped to be here and, and honored. You are such a fine interviewer. So I'm really grateful to you for having me. I know. Well, this is this is high stakes because I'm interviewing one of my interviewer heroes. So you'll have to let me know oh, how we do here. Hero, well, hero is very, very, very generous. Well, that's really kind of you, Cindy. And I'm just glad to get to talk to you. I'm very generous. So let's get going. You grew up in a Jewish family in Thornhill, Ontario, which is um, really close to Toronto. Mm -hmm. That's where you live now. What did your Jewish faith and understanding of your family's heritage look like growing up and how do you relate to it now? I love we're going in deep first question. I love it. I, uh, I went to Hebrew school when I was growing up until eighth grade. So for most of my life as a young kid, like half of my schooling was in another language. And my point of connection to Jewish faith was very, it was less religious based and more based in in tradition and in family and in values. And I connected with it so deeply when I was a kid. Like I just, I really loved it. I spent a ton of time with both of my grandparents and steeped in our sort of family traditions. And then My grandparents on my father's side, my Bubba and my Zeta, both survived the Holocaust. And that was such a huge part of my childhood. I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, as I'm talking about like the song See You Home that's kind of based on my Bubba story. But like we grew up with, you know, there were a photograph on the wall of my grandfather's family when it was complete with his um, 12 siblings. And then most of them didn't survive the war. And that was just part of the story that I knew when I was a kid of of what our family history was. Um, So it was very uh, beautiful and very heavy. And I think I had a sort of complicated ups and downs with it throughout my life. I think as as anybody with an identity that's... um, maybe slightly different or, or a slightly, slightly smaller group um, has. But the way I feel about it now is I feel a lot of gratitude because I think that genuinely the universal values that I learned from my family that were steeped in for us Judaism um, just helped me so much in, in life <laughs> and helped me to be grateful and to be generous when I can and to see the humanity in all people. And um, yeah, I'm really I, – I, I take a lot of heart in in that upbringing and also, you know, 
my favorite values from from my Jewish upbringing are the universal ones that anybody from any background shares, you know, of loving other people and doing acts of kindness and having gratitude and and living as if there's something bigger than you. Yeah. It's a long answer. Sorry. No, we love it. I read that you love to learn. You said, I'm a firm believer that everyone is a student and everyone is a teacher and inevitably someone I get to interact with during the course of a day teaches me something I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. Where did that love of learning come from and how do you best learn? Oh, how do I best learn? Okay. I'm going to save that one. I'll say it came from my parents for sure. Both of my folks, um, were teachers. My mom taught kindergarten for her whole career. And for with, briefly towards the end, she graduated to first grade and taught literacy in first grade. Uh, but for most of her career, she was a kindergarten teacher. And my dad was a professor at a university. And they both worked really, really hard to help people learn stuff because it was cool. And they, they both had such a passion for helping people grow, learn, share, all of that stuff. So I'm sure that that's where I got it from. And I think I've always been curious since I was a little kid. I wanted to know how things worked. I wanted to talk to people and ask them questions about stuff, maybe obnoxiously so um, <laughs> when I was small. And as for how I learn best, like, I don't know, because it depends on what I'm what I'm learning, I can remember when it comes to music, like hearing things is such a vivid experience for me. Obviously, you never know what it's like in anybody else's head. But if I hear something like a melody, it can it can stick with me and it can get learned really quickly. And I have a weird audio memory kind of a thing where like if I've learned a fact from a podcast, I can remember where I was walking while I was listening to that podcast. It's like a strange, I don't know, it's a weird sense memory thing. But I find if I really have to learn something well and it's new information, I have to read it. And I also have to uh, write it or engage with it, make notes. I'm a very pen and paper kind of a person. Um, So if I had to learn something for a test or if I want to really try to remember something that's important to me, I have to absorb it and then write it down. Like I'm a maniac about writing things down and I have notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks of, of handwritten stuff for learning, I guess, and for also just exorcising, not like exercising, <laughs> like fitness, like getting out. Yeah. Right. Right. I want to hear about your early relationship with radio and how does that early relationship continue to impact you? Mm. I remember listening to the radio a lot with my dad in particular in car rides, like on the way to school, on the way to the subway. I remember there's one Canadian journalist um, who hosted a show called The Current. It was like a current affairs show called Anna Maria Tremonti. And she would come on in the mornings. And I remember thinking that she was the smartest human being that had ever walked the face of the earth and thinking just like, (laughs) I remember, I remember my, my dad being so uh, impressed and then thinking like, wow, I want to be smart and talk about stuff on the, on the radio someday. And my dad did, uh, had a brief stint on radio, uh, sharing some of his knowledge about business and entrepreneurship from some of his professorial stuff. And he loved that. And then I, as a teenager, like, well, even before that, like middle schooler, sixth grade and on, 
loved listening to music on the radio. Obviously, it was the era where you had like a boom box and then you had a little tape deck um, in it and you would have to hit record and play at the same time when your favorite song came on and then you could record it from the radio mm -hmm. onto a tape so you could listen to it again. And my favorite DJs. And there's also a guy called Alan Cross, who's a music journalist uh, who had this show called The Ongoing History of New Music. And it was on the, the rock station on Sunday nights. And it was sort of like a a really cool documentary show about little known, well, exactly what the title says, the ongoing history of new music. You know, it was, it was new and old stuff and just like really cool behind the music stories. And that I think more than anything shaped my love of radio and, and what I wanted to hmm. eventually do when it became a, a music uh, interviewer rather. I don't know if it's like a music journalist. I don't ever say that when I started to talk to people about their music. Yeah. So I don't know very much about Canadian radio. Mm. Are there commercial stations as well as the CBC? Yeah, okay. there are commercial stations. We had like, when I was growing up, there was like the pop station and then there's uh, Q107, which was like the classic rock station. And then 102.1, mm. the edge was like the more contemporary rock station and kiss 92 and and uh, like yeah we have we have a bunch of commercial radio and then we have cbc as well all right the next time we see each other because i feel like people are going to get real bored if i start asking you nuts and bolts questions about like canadian radio programming but next time we see each other let's put a pin in this and pick it up for sure uh because i'm i'm interested to hear about like the homogenization of canadian radio if it ever happened but oh yeah it's ha it's happening we can definitely put a pin in oh. that yeah all right all right great great Sidebar. Okay. I know that you were always singing growing up, but what did the music scene look like in your house? Like who was singing with you? Was anyone else playing anything and what was being played and or listened to? The music scene in my house had a lot of theater and show tunes. I was I was pretty into theater when I was a kid. We listened to Les Mis, the music, Les Miserables, sorry to use the formal official full title, Les Miserables, uh, the musical when I was a kid. And there was like videos, there's archival videos of me running from one end to the other end of my parents' couch and singing the song Master of the House at like age four or five. Um, and, and nobody was- <laughs> You were doomed. Yeah, nobody was <laughs> singing with me at that point, Cindy. Absolutely <laughs> no one. Uh yeah. And then, I mean, I remember, this is funny, I cover a Huey Lewis song with my band right now, and I'll always have a Huey Lewis, love of Huey Lewis, because my dad's tape deck had pretty, pretty great stuff in the, in the car. There was um, that Huey Lewis uh, album with, with the four guys are on the, the cover in the, in the red suits, and that was on repeat. And um a Night at the Opera by Queen was also in his tape deck. We listened to that a bunch. And he's like kind of a, a folky. So he loved Leonard Cohen and Joni. And I don't think that I had an, an appreciation for them when I was growing up. But then certainly a little bit later, I've come to um, obviously love and revere his record collection. And both my folks play guitar. Mm -hmm. Like my mom played guitar in her in her kindergarten class, sort of like basic and simple, fun, fun songs. And my dad is quite a beautiful guitar player and singer. And he put it down for, for some time that he has started to pick it up again. And it makes me so happy that, that he's rekindled that. And sometimes on the, um, John Prine died during, uh, during COVID. And mm -hmm. at that time I was living with my folks for the first time since I was 17. 
And um, my dad and I, in his honor, learned uh, Summer's End together. We we sang yeah. it as a little little duet together. Um, picked it picked it on the guitar. So yeah. Also, I didn't know your mom was a kindergarten teacher. Oh yeah, it's all coming together. <laughs> Is it? Do I have do I have child <laughs> of a kindergarten teacher energy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's like the sweetest human. <laughs> she's the sweetest human. I bet she is. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned theater. That's a big part of your story. You made your professional debut at 14 and have been cast in many productions. Um, you would perform like many, many shows a week on stage. I read eight shows a week for one particular production. And you likened that form of professional acting to being an athlete. How did you retain your love for music, singing and performing during those types of runs? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, eight shows a week is kind of the the norm when you're doing a show like that. And when you're in the grind of auditioning, like that's what you're dreaming of. And then you kind of get there and you're like, whoa, this is intense, man. Because um, a couple of days of the week, you're doing two, two shows, two full shows. And depending on how demanding they are, you know, it can be pretty tiring. And the question that you just asked is like, I think a question that a lot of actors sometimes ask themselves in, in long, <laughs> long runs. Like I did the, the queen show for over a year. Um, but I have to say eight shows a week for over a year. Yeah. 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 Wow. Talia. Yeah. Did, same for Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia. I did eight shows a week for a full year. And then We Will Rock wow. You was over a year, closer to a year and a half probably. And then American Idiot was like eight, eight months. Yeah. All eight shows a week. And I love me. It's stupid. But I love music so much <laughs> that there's like always something great to find in singing that music. And those shows, I mean, the the music that you're doing, these are all jukebox musicals you're, with the Queen one in particular and, and Green Day too. You're like singing incredible music that is so amazing and so complex and so fun. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe every once in a while I'd have a moment where I'd be like, mm, you know what? I don't know if I want to sing We Are the Champions today, but then, you know, it hits, you feel the crowd and then you just, you just sing it and then you have so much fun and and then it's over. And I look back on those years mm. so fondly because um, it was grueling, but it was also, it was so much fun. It was so fun. Singing is your first true love. Um, what has been the evolution of your connection to your singing voice? Oh, that's another really good question. It is my relationship is so different now than it was when I was doing theater. Um, when I was doing theater, I saw things change so much. I did my first professional show when I was when I was fourteen, and that was mm. in the year two thousand. Um, and over the next like couple of decades, the style of singing for women in musical theater. Uh, got higher and higher and higher. And it's sort of like the wicked, the wicked effect, you know, those like crazy high belted notes that Alphabet sings in, in wicked um, mm -hmm. are significantly higher and held for significantly longer um, than shows that came before it. And the, the trend now is like a very, very high, it's, it's all about the high notes and the super long held notes and vocal gymnastics. And I, you know, Saying like that when I did those shows, 
Um, but I don't choose to sing like that really anymore now. It's a lot more of a, a choose a choose your moment. And I get to have a more, because I'm not having to hit the same note every night because I've written the songs that I'm singing, they can be different and they can really be felt in the moment as I feel them. And, you know, sometimes like the songs, some of them have climaxes and some of them have, you know, feelings that take you one way or another way, depending on, on, on the, the mood that day. And so my relationship mm-hmm. to my voice, like I, it used to be that I would expect my voice to hold a note for a particular time on a particular day. And if it couldn't do that, I was upset with myself or I was upset with it. And it was like, I'm not in good voice today. I'm scared to do the show, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And now I feel so much more liberation in like doing my own shows where it's like, okay, my, I'm going to meet my voice where it is today. And that's, that's what the show is going to be. And um, I'm going to sing it like I mean it. And that's kind of the mm. only thing that I'm going to ask from my voice. And yeah. I'm enjoying it more than I ever did. Oh, that's such an important lesson. Mm-hmm. I have a part two of this question. Sure. How about your speaking voice and host personality? Like, how did you develop your on-air persona? And what do you think your speaking voice? My speaking voice? I I never thought much about my speaking voice until I started doing radio stuff. And I think that listening to your own voice, I'm sure you know this, Cindy, like when you started doing your podcast and then you're listening to your own voice, it's the weirdest thing to do. Like when we used to leave people voicemails all the time, you would like hear your voice on a voicemail and you'd be like, that's what I sound like. Like that's (laughs) weird, man. And I had the same thing when I started doing radio. I was super lucky to have an amazing mentor at CBC um, called Anne McKeegan, who who coached a lot of the hosts in the music department on programming. And we would do these air checks where we would sit once a week and like listen to a couple of host breaks and break them down and see what could be better. And the thing is, um, I think the only thing that matters when you're speaking, like people People will sometimes say, oh, I like I like your voice. I like hearing you on the radio. What I really think that they like is they like hearing a person who is being themselves, who's relaxed, who's not, you know, trying to push any ad- agenda or convince anyone of anything. Like I think that the more mm-hmm. you sound like yourself in daily life and the way that you would speak to a friend, the the better your voice sounds, as it were, quote unquote. I use, you know, better in air quotes, but I think, mm-hmm. and so learning how to do that was a funny challenge because, like, you have to learn how to continue to be yourself when you're in front of a microphone. And it sounds like the easiest thing in the world to do, but it's so hard. Um, and I think it took for me years before I felt like when I heard myself on the radio that I could hear, you know, even though I still cringe at the sound of my own voice, I could at least hear myself as a person being uh, consistent an authentic self. Do you cringe at the sound of your own voice? Every, yeah. Your speaking voice? Everybody does. I mean, I don't, maybe I don't cringe at it anymore. Like I'm okay with it and I've done enough. I'm desensitized mm. enough. I've done enough listening to it that I'm Just like- Just used to it. I'm okay with while, it. Yeah, what I think. exactly. Yeah. But it's not like yeah. I'm like, ooh, the, listen to that <laughs> radio voice. And it was <laughs> the same making my record. Like because I I was so involved in the like arranging process and in, in choosing takes and putting things together- I even always have to turn off the part of my brain that's analyzing, like, does this sound beautiful? Does this sound good or not? And the only question that really matters to me, like in in recording for singing or in recording for radio for anything is like, do I 
do I sound like I'm telling the truth? Do I sound mm. like I mean it? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So good. <laughs> okay. You decided to get a degree in broadcasting at the Toronto Metropolitan University. And after taking time away from school to join a couple of theater productions, working eight shows a week, singing hi, 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 <laughs> um, you got an internship at CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. You got it. Which is similar to, for those who don't know, is similar to NPR in America. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how did you get, how, how did you go from intern to getting hired at CBC? And how do you think that initial environment of working at the CBC has impacted the type of broadcaster you became? How did I get the, well, I was interning on a show called Day Six, and it was a Saturday morning. It was a weekly current affairs show that was really creative, like a, a, a show that that has sort of a, a a twist on the main stories of of the week, and always approaches things from from cool angles. And I feel like doing that internship um, taught me to think a little bit out of the box about how to approach things, how to, how to tell a story. Um, and the people on that show were so smart that I felt so like intimidated and so inspired to to try to learn how to think like they thought. Um, and really, the way that I got my first job there was through a lot of what word do I want to use? I'll use the Yiddish word. The word is chutzpah, like a lot of nerve. I I really <laughs> liked being there in the building. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go back to try go back to to New York and try some more acting stuff. So I like didn't have an apartment in Toronto as of the end of my internship. But towards the end of my internship, I was like, I'm just going to cold call some people in the building and see if anybody will meet with me because CBC's the the Toronto headquarters is really big, all sorts of departments. Mm -hmm. And so I went through the directory and I just kind of cold called some people. And one of those people was the executive producer of CBC Music. And I called him and I just said, like, I have a security pass that's only going to work until Friday. I think this was like Monday or Tuesday. Would you consider having a cup of coffee and just like telling me more about what you do? I have the music background and I think we'd have a lot to talk about. And he was like kind enough to let me come to his office and, and talk for a while. And then he called me back a few days later and said, I have a project that is starting um, next week and I don't have a producer for it, do you think that you would be interested? And it's like crazy to, to say it now. Like, I don't know what he saw in me that made him think that I was capable of that because I certainly had no real skill to do what the task was, which was um, to plan and execute this cross-country road trip for a host. A, a CBC host was getting in a Volkswagen Beetle in uh, Vancouver on the West Coast and driving all the way to Montreal and making stops with 15 bands to shoot like band sessions along the way. And it was my job to plan and kind of execute the whole thing. And I just, <laughs> I know, I was like, I said uh, yes before. I do this a lot. I just was like, sure. And then, <laughs> and then on my first day, I was like, what the heck do I think I'm doing? And I went and got this big map of Canada and I put it up next to my desk and I just sat and stared at it for like the first three days. 
and with little push pins that I was going to put in the cities that we were going to go to. And then, you know, after a few days, I sucked it up and figured out. But at that time, I was also like, so I had no money. I was a finished school and I felt like I couldn't give up my bar shifts because I was, I had worked my way up to some good shifts at the bar down the street called the Loose Moose. So for like the first couple months that I worked at CBC, I would work there all week and then I would put on a ridiculous outfit and walk down the street and then go do my waitressing shifts all weekend. Do you want to describe the outfit? Yeah, it was okay. It was bad. It was a bad tank top that was like a purple, a purple color. And it had little loose moose branding on it, but you had to wear it with a a skirt and you had to wear it with like shoes that looked relatively high. Um, But that was very dumb because you would have to chase Blue Jays fans down the street who didn't pay their bills after coming to like eat a bunch of nachos before a game. And these shoes like in the winter wearing a tank top and high boots running down front street being like, you can't get away with this. (laughs) So yeah, the outfit was not helpful for, for what the job required. I I stuck with it. And then after a while, I kind of like weaseled my way through, um, it was honestly just having conversations with people and getting feeling so lucky in having a, a few folks there take a chance on me before I was really ready for an opportunity and then mm-hmm. having good mentor mentors and the culture there. I'm giving you a very long answer and I forgot the second part of your question, but I think it was about the the how the culture there. Yeah, what I what the, the the thing about the culture at the time when I started, I felt so much support and care and uh, and mentorship and I just I felt like there were lots of opportunities and possibility and that people were excited about what we could do um, at that time. And so that um, that really felt like home home to me then. And it made me mm. think about how I wanted to be in my career and how I always wanted to have that feeling and help other people when I could and, and just be excited mm. about storytelling. So listening to your first gig at uh, CBC that kind of like rolls into this question that is maybe going to go in a different direction than you think. But there is this famous story of you guest hosting on CBC where you interviewed St. Vincent. Uh Bruce Warren, the program director at WXPN in Philly, heard that interview and emailed you after with his compliments. Then he encouraged you to apply for a contributing producer at the NPR music show World Cafe, which you would go on to take over for the original host, David Dye. It was a huge deal. Um, It was also a grind similar to your time in theater, uh, from what I gather. And like, I just want to know, like, how are you about overworking yourself? And how has your experience with World Cafe and theater impacted your willingness to push that kind of like work-life imbalance? Mm, That's such a good question. (laughs) I had to do a hard reset after I left World Cafe on on work-life imbalance. A hard reset. Like I, I struggle with it a lot now too. I think I'm a lot better than I was at knowing when to shut it down. Although now that I'm doing music and, and my art and my life are intersecting so much, I'm struggling with it again. But back then, like when in my early days at CBC, I worked like a maniac. Like I, I beyond really beyond what, um, I would want for myself now. Like, and, and it was, it, it wasn't that anybody was asking me to do that either. It was the standard that I held myself to and the way that I felt that I needed to prove myself in everything. And 
Hmm. As I'm saying that, like, I don't even know what the takeaway is because it did lead to, it led to good things and I got really good opportunities. And, and part of that was because I worked really hard. And, and I remember like when I was asking for the opportunity to guest host on Q for the first time, right before the interview that you mentioned with, with St. Vincent, the person that I was speaking to, he was like, what would your manager right now say if I told her that I was going to have you guest host Q for a week? And I said, she would say that I'm not ready to do it, but that I'll work really hard. And I was like, I will work harder than anybody that you will have guest host to learn everything I can to try to do a good job. Um, and I don't know if that's good or I mean, the the result has been good, but the process, I don't know if that was good. And and you know, when I was at World Cafe, the 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 workload there, especially in the beginning, especially in the in the first year or two, um, was wild. And again, nobody was putting it on me. Nobody was asking me to listen to every single album in um, you know, uh Macy Gray's discography before speaking to her. I should have picked somebody with a bigger discography. But, you know, no, nobody was asking me <laughs> to go that deep on research or to to do that much prep or to sit, you know, at the computer all hours finessing the intro until I felt like it was just perfect. Um, I was asking myself to do that. Um, and so I think that I'm trying to learn. I don't know how to I don't know how to translate these lessons into art because art is a whole different thing. And I just work on a song until it's done. And we worked on my record like mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not done until it's, it's done. Um, but I think, but then the, the thing that you can spend forever on is the marketing. Oh my God. And promotion of yourself. Yeah, That's making me crazy. that right now. That's, I can't believe how much work that is right now. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's crazy because it's like all these platforms and everything needs something different. And I, you honestly mm-hmm. feel, I feel, and I feel really strongly about this. And I want to like write or talk about it in a bigger way at some point. But like we're just working for all these social media platforms by providing fodder for their sites. Like art is not content. And when you talk about making content, you're talking about populating the sites of companies that are making lots of money. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know how much that furthers art, but anyway, that's a whole, that's a whole other rabbit hole. I'm trying to be a bit of pin in that next time we see each other, <laughs> but yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to be a little bit better about work life and also knowing that part of it's weird. Cause work, like when you really love what you do, you also just work hard at it cause you love it. You know, I loved mm-hmm. writing those interviews for World Cafe. I loved laboring over them all hours because then when you have a really great conversation, it's like, wow, that was so fun. And so I don't know what that says, but I think that having a bit more boundary, having a bit more of a sense of self-care is something that a lot of us learned during COVID times. And I'm continually trying to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. I agree. Yeah. I read that you were talking about how with public media, you don't have to adhere to commercial media standards and that you're more open to play what you wanted to play, but you want to keep things accessible. And you said sometimes music discovery can feel snobbish or exclusive. How do you think that relates to your artistry and then the way that you present yourself as a musician? 
I don't know that I've thought about that yet. I think when I'm making music or figuring out how a song is going to be arranged or writing that I am not I'm not really thinking about any anything of how anything should be. I'm really super trying to this will sound very hairy fairy but really trying to be open to what is and like when a song is being worked on or when it comes out or when it's done it has this feeling of like inevitability to it like I can't decide that this should be more accessible or quote unquote or more uh, folky or less rock and roll, or I can't decide that actually. This the song, the the song, the thing, the whatever is telling me what it is. So my job is to like not ask too many questions and just like let it take its full form. And then that's sort of like a thing that you just know in your heart when it is the thing that it's supposed to be. So for me, that's not even part of the process and part of the difficulty now because because I do have to like pay bills and continue to live life. I'm doing freelance in in radio stuff and I'm still interviewing people or thinking a little bit about music programming here and there. And I find it really hard to flip my brain between artist mode that is like totally devoid of that, like not thinking about that in the slightest and almost can't because it's detrimental to super, super, super thinking about that. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Does that answer the question? Yeah. I would find that really hard too. To flip back and forth. Yeah. Uh, okay. This kind of relates. This kind of relates to that. Um, while hosting at, at the World Cafe through interviewing musicians, you discovered that you wanted to pursue your own music and your own writing. And you've talked about how nobody hands you a per- permission slip and says, you're allowed to make art now. You either do it or you don't. So you left World Cafe. And this sounds like to me for the first time, like this is a decision that you made on your own like it was your own idea like you've been presented with several quote-unquote offers you couldn't refuse but what did it feel like to make this one that seems like a huge leap of faith this decision what was it like to make it for yourself that's so right that's exactly what it was it was like I'm not going to be bounced around by by what might be out there no matter how great it is it felt uh terrifying for sure and very freeing uh and defiant I think a little bit in Mm. a way like I almost had to I almost had to not almost I did have to prove to myself that I had the choice because I think that I'm so grateful for everything that I've gotten to do in in broadcasting um, and I feel like a few of those opportunities w- were so great that I didn't even let myself think. I didn't even let myself think about any other options. It was just like, yeah, you don't say no to this. You try this. You do it. And I'm glad that I did. And and but I think that I had to take a stand in my own life and say to myself, actually, you can actively choose what what you want for your path. And if you feel like there's something that you have to contribute that you are not getting the opportunity to to contribute in your current life situation, then change it. Don't, you can't, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's tough love. Like I had to tough love myself through it um, once I saw that, because it's also a bit like, well, what do you think you're going to do? <laughs> Who are you? Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit nutty, but um, 
yeah, I think that my level of my level of trust of myself now has increased and that apply, that I see the effects mm. of that. In, oh, great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's funny. I'm <laughs> just kind of realizing it as I'm as I'm articulating it to you, but the that applies to my voice, my writing, to everything. It has it has effects. It has effects on my relationships in a huge way. Um, but because yeah. I did that, I think that I I really did a solid for my own trust in myself and my own trust in my gut and feelings. And I wish that for yeah. everybody. Like I really wish for everybody to have trust in in their own path, you know? Mm. And like you said, that ripples out into your relationships. It ripples out into the world. Big time. Big time. So you did us a favor as well. Oh, that's kind. I don't know. Humanity says thank you, Talia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This question kind of expands on that. So you are someone who has not only been searching for your calling, but you've left a couple of sure things like we just mentioned in order to find that calling, which we're here. Are we here? I, the music? We're here. Are you going to... Are you going to change gears or is this, this is the one? Oh, that's a question. No, that's not the oh. question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that, was in a, that was a question within a okay. question. So here's the question. Um, what has been your experience with that seeking and especially that leaving? Are you able to easily recognize when you're in something that's just like not for you? And how do you identify that? That's a deep question get in there. Yeah, right. I think it's a it's a gut feeling and it's a a presence thing. Like if I'm so busy, if I'm so busy that I'm not taking time to do a little bit of writing each day or do a little bit of mindfulness or take some time to kind of observe what's going on inside in any given day, then then that kind of stuff doesn't happen. But as I find as soon as I add that into my routine, um, it's kind of like sticks out like a sore thumb if something is not feeling um, right. And not that we get to choose. It's mm-hmm. it's a very different between like things feeling good or being fun because we don't actually get to live in a world where like things are good or fun all the time. Um, but we know when we're living out of step with our integrity or what what feels what feels correct inside, yes. right? Even if that's really hard or really sad or really whatever. Um, and so I think just by focusing on things that make me more present, then I'm more easily able to identify with it. And I also don't, in my life, um, like making a hard and fast decision about the way that anything is going to be forever. Like I'm really for better or for worse, um, I don't have the ability to feel like some, this is an inarticulate sentence, because of a lot of what I do for work also involves an element of personality and of myself. Um, Like talking to people on the radio or writing music, this all requires you to bring a lot of yourself to the table. I'm incapable of continuing if I feel like I'm not able to bring my authentic self to the table or if I feel like I have to shove something down to do it. I actually just, I don't know what it is. Like I don't have that valve. I can't do it. I'd rather leave (laughs) and find something else or find a way to make it work. Um, But I, uh, yeah, and I think 
that also speaks to the level of trust with myself. Like I'm not going to ask myself to be out of integrity with what, with what my values are, with what my beliefs are. Um, and so, yeah, that applies to everything too. And so then it becomes kind of, kind of easy. So right now music feels, and, and what I'm doing with this record feels the most authentic and is what has to happen now. And then, you know, what happens next? I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll know it when we see it. Okay. Talia, you left world cafe and went back to Toronto then you did something really cool. You bought a one-way ticket to Europe to live in cheap Airbnbs so you could write your record. Amazing. I want to do that right now. <laughs> what was that time like for you, like coming down off Philly and all that you left behind and stepping into your new life? I was really uh, a mess for a little while, as you can imagine, because it was such a huge, it was such a huge change. Like it's looking back, I'm extremely grateful that I did it. I wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, and it needed to happen as it did, but it was a cr- it was a crash for sure. And it was so intense to finish the job there, try to hand it off well, wrap up my apartment and living in Philly and a relationship that ended and saying goodbye to all these friends. Like it was everything. And I kind of couldn't handle it. So I went into emotional shutdown mode and I isolated myself like right away. Like I went away and I cut myself off. Um, and that was hard on some friendships that were important to me at that time. It was hard on a lot of things, but I didn't know what else to do. Um, and then Mm. I sort of had to hit like rock bottom in, in a, a lot of ways. Like it was very fun and glamorous to be in a new place, but also a lot of it was like walking around I was in Paris for a month first and a lot of it was like writing like crazy in the morning and then walking around aimlessly for hours and then crying a bunch and then going to see some art and then coming home and writing again. And then like it was, I just, I, I, I just let myself reconnect with everything that I was feeling that I had shoved down for a few years while I was Mm. so busy and, and trying to do a hard job. I really, um, there was so much that was pent up and I kind of just went to let myself feel it all and try to document it and write it down and reset. And so it was, I saw some really beautiful things and I got to be in amazing places and it was also difficult. And I got to see parts of myself that I was really uncomfortable with and that I had never taken the time to look at before. Um, and I tried to just not be afraid of that part of things. Like I kind of let myself be mm. afraid of the the future stuff and the, you know, what's, what am I going to do next? Like you be afraid of that. Fine. But I tried to let myself not be afraid of the parts of myself that I needed to learn something about. And so, yeah, it was intense time, but it's good. You've talked about that you had something inside of you that you had to make as well as you're not living with integrity with yourself if you realize something like that and don't act on it. And you were talking a bit about integrity previously on in, in our conversation. But what about like the pressure? Like what kind of pressure did you feel about creating something that would satisfy that quote unquote something inside of you that made you leave your life in Philly? Immense pressure and um, an unfair amount of pressure based on the amount of time that I had previously given myself to 
express myself creatively in that way. Like there's um, a really good Ira Glass like meme thing that was going around a while ago about how when you start out at something creative, you're drawn to it because you have great taste. And then when you try to do it in the beginning, there's a huge gap between your taste and your ability. Um, and your work is to, you know, keep going until you narrow that gap. I'm paraphrasing, but I took a lot of comfort from that idea of his because I was at World Cafe, like listening to some of the greatest music by some of the greatest artists. And then I left to try and express what was inside of me. And I was writing absolute garbage that nobody will ever hear, you know, but it just like, it takes time to, to start. And I just tried to let myself not be good at anything for a while. Um, and I also didn't, decide that I was going to make a record. Like I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to make when I went away. There were a couple of screenplay ideas I was bouncing around in my head. I kind of just made myself the promise that I would continue to write and to not try to control it too much and then to see it through. And then it sort of became like when I got home from from that trip in the winter of 2020, I then I was like, okay, I do want to give myself more time to work on this music. I think I do need to make an album and try to try to make something that I feel that I can hear the truth in. So the album is Grace for the Going and it it's said, it's so said in your bio, it's a reflection of her reverence for the power of words, genuine love of connecting with people, and your passionately eclectic musical taste. So Talia, yeah. let's start with the power of words. What was your writing process like for the songs? Like, do you allow yourself to approach writing freely without judgment? And what is your editor like? And here's another question. To add to that question, after interviewing so many songwriters, were you able to glom any tips and tricks? Tips and tricks. Yeah. I think number one tips and tricks is just like, keep at it. Like just do, just actually do it. Like there's no magic thing that happens and then you're a great writer and then your work is done. Like anybody who I've talked to that's really good at it just does it. Like they just practice it. They write a lot. They write again. They write more. They take risks. You know, people who have really incredible long lasting, like I think of Paul Simon all the time. He's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite songwriting heroes. And mm-hmm. how many risks he's taken and like the types of stories that he'll try to tell in a song or the kinds of words that he'll use to try and convey an emotion stylistically, lyrically, all of these things. And I think that he seems to be somebody that if I think if I think about what his thought process might be, it seems like it has maximum freedom in it and that like all ideas are possible until proven otherwise. And so... I try to think about that in my writing. My critic is vicious. Uh, my editor is vicious. Um, and that's okay. Like I, I know that and I can, I can work with that. Um, I think it makes the work better. I was ready to record a whole album before COVID happened. And then the amount of time and space that I had to hone things, um, only one song survived in its actual form and it's the, oh, wow. the endling is the only song that oh. stayed the same um from what i had written when i was in lisbon to now which is like almost four years later um or three and a half years later but 
Yeah, I write, my writing process is like, I need to write a lot of volume to get down to something and I need to write it with pen and paper. I have like boxes and boxes of notes and scribbles and scrawls and whatever. And and I try to have the contract with myself that I'm allowed to write the worst thing anybody's ever read um, and it doesn't matter and nobody has to see it and that's fine. And for me, that's kind of the only way to write enough that I can find something to, to work on that gets me excited. On connecting with people, um, while you were writing in, I think this was the referring to like being in Europe and, and writing, you said I was already a professional recluse at that point. So I just kind of kept hiding away, writing and editing my songs with your vicious editor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you, like connecting with people. Mm -hmm. However, how do you reconcile your love of connecting with people along with the need for being by yourself or as you said, being a recluse? I don't know. I have both. I have both instincts in me very strongly and I don't know how I reconcile them. Like I need, I need solo time for sure to recharge. And I also need to talk and feel connected with people. And I think I had done it in so in the extreme for a few years before I went away and practiced my professional recluse time um, that I just had so much (laughs) of a built up need. Now I tried to do it a little bit more balanced. Maybe I can do it all within one day, you know, having the right amount of solo time (laughs) and the right amount of together time. But I think if I ever write something again, not if I ever write something again, when I continue the writing process that I've started, but I'm more focused on finishing um, a record, I think that that requires some a degree of solitude for me for sure that I have to be able to find, even if it is just you know within a few hours, but that's necessary for writing for me for sure. I wanted to um, so I've got one more question about one of the songs on the record, and then we'll do a lightning round. Okay. Um, I really so first of all, just a comment that um, the sonic landscape of this record is like very cohesive and, and well plotted. Mm, thank you. Uh, and, and the record opens with the song See You Home, which is about your grandmother. So quick story. Your grandmother across the Atlantic by ship with her husband and daughter, who's your aunt, after surviving the Holocaust. She died when you were 14 and you heard the story that takes place in See You Home for the first time at her funeral And the story is that she was thinking the boat was going to sink. So she promised her daughter that she would hold her up in the air so that she wouldn't, she would make it. Um, Thanks for, how has that, sorry, it's so nice to hear you tell that story. Like I'm usually the one that tells it. And it's really nice to hear somebody else say it. So thank you for that. Sorry. Yeah. Listen, sit back, relax. (laughs) I'll tell all your stories. Thank you for that though. It's really sweet. (laughs) I love that story and I wanted to hear how that experience changed the way you relate to and think about the older generation in your family. Mm. I've always loved old people, (laughs) older people. I think it is because I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a, when I was a kid, I very fond memories of spending lots of time with my Bubba and my Zeta on my dad's side and my Bubby and my Sadie on my mom's side. Um, and hearing about their lives and hearing stories from them, there's such a peacefulness to people who are lucky enough to be 
well and healthy and and comfortable and all these things. But on both sides of my family, both sets of grandparents really started with nothing um, and worked so hard their whole lives um, to be able to provide for my parents and to be able to give my parents some semblance of a dream. So I think that spending time with them is like, it's humbling. I think that's a a lot of where my sense of gratitude comes from. Um, And I still have one living grandparent, my Zadie, uh, my mom's father. And he, uh, I just showed him the liner notes for the first time for my album. And there's a really sweet video that I'll share, but he's like reading them and he gets so choked up when he reads his own name. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, having, getting to know older people in your life is the best. And even if you're not lucky enough to have living grandparents, I think like growing up as a kid, like just being able to be around older people who have lived through some shit and seen some stuff and aren't as worried about the things that don't matter because they've, they've lived through it. Um, is a really like a good kind of essence to to absorb. And I think that that upbringing gave me like a peacefulness that I find useful now. I love that. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Talia Schlanger, <laughs> let's do the lightning round. Okay, I'm ready. Who is the first person you interviewed on the radio? Oh my goodness. The first person that I interviewed on the radio? Mm-hmm. Did it have to be real radio or in school radio? School radio, yeah. Jeff Pereira uh, did is the leader of this group called the White Ribbon Club. He's an activist trying to help um, men with masculinity and with uh, a reduction of, of harm against women and violence. And it was like this, he was this super cool activist on campus at TMU. And I loved what he was doing and loved his activism. So I brought him into uh radio um interview when i was in school and he was the first person that i really interviewed wow unexpected that's a good one you're a good person no not at all jeff's a good person (laughs) wow that guy's done some good stuff (laughs) okay next question who's the last person you interviewed on the radio on the radio, the last person would be Lily Gladstone most recently for the show Q at CBC. And she just won a Golden Globe for her performance in Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, and yeah, she's the last person that I got to talk to for radio. Did you see that movie? Yeah, I did. Did you? Ugh, yes. I read the book, too. The, bu- the book was, uh, I feel like, essential in order to like following the movie. I want to read the book. The story is just I don't even have yeah. a word for it of what it is right it's staggering yeah yeah first album you bought with your own money Dookie by Green Day of course <laughs> what is one skincare or beauty product you cannot live without saying thank you when I go to bed at night to my eyelashes oh my god <laughs> <laughs> for keeping my eyes open <laughs> wow <laughs> Who is your celebrity crush? I was going to say Volodymyr Zelensky. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is a guest question from our friend Amy Miller. Okay. Hi, Talia. How's it going? Have you ever met Drake? 
Oh, I've never met Drake, but I have been asked that question before. <laughs> Amy, I love it. That's so funny. My dad met Drake in a bathroom once at one of my shows, actually. Wow. I know. But he was more excited that it was Jimmy from Degrassi. And I was like, Dad, that's Drake. That's a very big celebrity that you've met in the in the, in yeah. the bathroom. Come on, Dad. Yeah, let's get it together. Okay, this is, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place in the world? Oh, oh my God. I'm going to make myself barf with this answer. But honestly, sn- snuggling in the bed with the person that I love very much. Oh, I can, t- that is I, can, nice. I can tell you the most physically beautiful place, I think, in the world, if you want a more real rapid fire answer. Do you have one? Um, I think the most beautiful place I've ever seen was, uh, oh my goodness, there's so many that are all flooding through. I'm terrible at rapid fire because I always want to be like, yeah, but that, but then that, but then that, but mm-hmm. then that. I can tell. And also that, and also that. Like right now I'm thinking of the, the, coast, the coastline in... Um, in Portugal near Lisbon like in a town called Sintra overlooking the Atlantic Ocean it's like the most um, westerly point of Europe and it was where they used to think that the world ended there's a song actually that oh. I'm working on ba- based on that that idea and I went there oh, on, how cool. on my travels yeah and it's just like that that looking looking out at the ocean at that point I don't I don't even know what you would call the physical point my i'm gonna get it an f in geography but it was like was considered the most westerly point of north america and it's off off the coast of portugal looking at the atlantic ocean and just thinking about how people at that at before um america was you know a lot of people already knew about what we call turtle island because they all lived here called the indigenous people but before some other people who lived in europe um learned that there was another place also they thought that that was the end of the world um Mm. and it wasn't so i just i think that's the most beautiful place because it's like has so much possibility in it and then you know yeah discovery amazing yeah don't sleep on portugal don't (sighs) sleep on sintra so you've been Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Isn't it so beautiful? Yeah. It's like you can't go wrong there it, no matter what you do. It's so beautiful. But then I'm also thinking about um, the most easterly point of Newfoundland and St. John's and like how similar kind of the coastlines oh, yeah. are across the Atlantic Ocean. Those were the two things that were battling in my mind for the most beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Tell you, Schlanger, thanks for talking to me. Thanks. You're... <laughs> You're you're just the best. No. You're oh my irresistible. God, no, no. The record is so good. Thank you. Everything you do is you're like Midas. Like everything you do, golden touch. You're far too kind. I really enjoyed talking to you. Your questions are very thoughtful. You made me think a lot today, so I appreciate that so much. Now you can take a rest. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Anthony Cabrera. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation podcast network. You can find all of our episodes at thebluegrasssituation.com. You can check us out on the SiriusXM app by searching for Basic Folk. You can find us wherever you got your podcast today, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I suggest you share it with a friend who's maybe in a rut and really wants to do something creative and just needs that extra push in order to make the leap into the unknown in order to do so. I think Talia is a real inspiration for that type of momentum and your friend will thank you for it 
as do I, Cindy, the host of Basic Folk. Thanks for listening all the way to the end, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.